Welcome back to the Informed Performance Podcast. My name is Dylan Carmody, and I'm a physical therapist and strength and conditioning coach. On today's show, we have Eric Mara, and we'll be discussing all things science and its application to clinical practice. For those that haven't heard about Eric yet, he serves many roles in the sports performance space. Having previously been the host of the PT Inquest podcast for 10 years, working in both private practice and elite sport, educating the profession through his in-person and online courses at thesciencept.com, and now adding in-person conferences like the Elite Basketball and Elite Hockey Rehab Conferences. If you know Eric, you already know that this conversation is chock full of both philosophical discussions and tangible takeaways about scientific applications to clinical practice. This will surely be a great listen for your practice as a coach or clinician. This episode of the Informed Performance Podcast has been sponsored by Vol Performance, makers of the Force Frame. Used by health and performance professionals for assessing and improving performance and rehabilitation, the Force Frame is a powerful solution for quickly and accurately testing isometric strength and imbalances. In addition to testing athletes, the Force Frame is also used to maintain and improve strength, offering over 130 isometric training protocols. As a portable and easy to use system, the Force Frame is designed to ensure every measurement can be accurately and reliably measured, time after time again. To learn more about the Force Frame, visit our sponsor, volperformance.com. All right. Eric, welcome to the Informed Performance Podcast. Hey, thanks for having me. I really appreciate it. Yeah, of course. Um, so I think today we should just kick things started with um, just having you give a brief introduction to who you are, what you do, um, maybe kind of some of the experiences that led you to what you're doing today, um, and then we'll kick off the conversation afterwards. Sure. Uh, so my name is Eric Maida. I'm a, uh, by license, I'm a physical therapist. Uh, I've been a physical therapist for about 25 years, although I stopped counting after a while. So um, mostly I focus on sports medicine is what my my passion has always been. Um, been a clinic owner um, for a while. Uh, my main thing now is, is education, continuing education for the most part, and then doing a lot of consulting. Um, I like to say that, you know, when you think of a physical therapist, I'm probably what I do is not what most people think of. Um, I like to define what I do more as like an applied biomechanist because uh, most of what I'm looking at are, you know, force production, um, you know, more the kinetic side of things, uh, specifically as an athlete's coming off of an injury. And so how are we tracking that, managing that, uh, and then meeting those goals uh, using objective data for the most part. So, um, you know, through all of that, uh, you know, it's just more a matter of, you know, I've been blogging and kind of publicly thinking about stuff for a long time. And this is why, um, you know, people then kind of turn to me as a, as a resource uh, now with all the education stuff that I do. And so I, I think that's kind of where I'm, I'm at with that. Uh, running a podcast on uh, research for well over a decade, uh, PT Inquest, uh, can, can lead to that as well, which, you know, fortunately, I've been able to turn that over to uh, Jason Torrey, uh, Chris Juno, and Meg Graham. Uh, who are doing a phenomenal job uh, taking that over. So uh, I don't have to deal with that anymore. So, yeah. I love it. What had sort of sparked you to share those thoughts like in the early days, kind of over a decade ago? Well, um, I actually have a blog post coming out on this that, that I wrote several months ago and I keep like not posting it, uh, but I keep talking about it on podcasts for some reason where I, I talk about how I got into the profession, which is I didn't know what physical therapy was uh, other than, 
Um, you know, seeing somebody like with a catastrophic injury and then all that work they had to do to get back to the field or the pitch or the court, uh, typically athletes. But then also, you know, I understood it for general population too, of, you know, you got in a car accident, you fell down some stairs, you, um, these types of things. And so my thinking was always, I'm going to take somebody from where they are and I'm going to use a process of basically, exposure, conditioning, you know, all these other things to get them up to where they want to become. And, you know, my background just, you know, interest wise was always physics and math and, and, you know, the, the basic sciences. And then I really liked weight room type stuff too. Just, you know, not, I was never, I mean, as you can see by my burly physique, I was never a major lifter. It was just something I found fascinating. Just the, just kinematics and kinetics and kinesiology and all that kind of stuff. Um, so when I got into the profession, um, I happened to be going to University of Florida at the time. Their PT school uh, was not very like manual therapy based or any of that type of stuff. So I learned, you know, a lot of, you know, neuro and um, and a lot of the stuff that I was kind of expecting coming through physical therapy school. Um, but then when I got out into practice, I was totally like dumbfounded, especially an outpatient as to what was going on. And, and I would just scratch my head and go, okay, well, that's not right or wrong. That's just not what I do. Um, and that's not the profession that I want to, that's not the career I want to have. So I just was doing my own thing somewhat. And I got tired of basically having supervisors, employers and whatnot, trying to push me into certain you know, pathways that I didn't want to go into. And so I just got, after like two years or so, I just got really frustrated with the, the world of physical therapy and, uh, and just opened my own practice as a, first as a strength and conditioning facility for high level athletes, um, which, you know, two years into practice, that pretty much was uh, professional golfers because they're all over the place. Uh, you know, it's, that doesn't mean tour professional. <laughs> that just means people who golf for a living, which is a, a quite a much larger subset of, of humans. Um, and then, uh, started kind of, they would get injured for whatever reason. Uh, and then they would ask me to be their physical therapist as well. And I was like, well, okay, I guess I can start doing that. Uh, and then the reason I started kind of putting this out more publicly is I would look around and just be like, I'm kind of doing this thing that I wish somebody else had been doing when I was coming up. And so I'm just going to start thinking out loud publicly about, why am I over here doing this? Now I had no boss or anything else that had that could put any sort of like leverage on me and tell me not to post things and whatever. Um, and that's also why I started the the podcast was the same reason was just to say, look, when I look at this literature, I see a lot of problems with it, and I'm just trying to, you know, I'm kind of looking around, going, am, am I crazy? Am I the only one like seeing these issues? Um, and you know what, uh, you know, and I. My friend J.W. Matheson was kind of agreeing with me, and so that's when we started the podcast and just started putting it out there. And, and the way we described it is we're not trying to necessarily change anybody's mind or anything. We're just trying to plant a flag and say, hey, if you are thinking the way we are, we're over here having these conversations. If this isn't for you, then it's not for you. It's fine. We're not here to change anybody's thinking, change the world in any way. We're just trying to put a space for people like us to, to find an opportunity to, to have these conversations. And so between the, the podcast and the blog, um, I just started putting stuff out there and it turned out that apparently there were a lot of people that were having some of these thoughts. It's a, it's a very interesting story and, and something that I feel like is different 
especially today. I mean, especially in terms of how much the profession has grown and things like that, where I think a lot of people try to put themselves out there in terms of sharing information and content. And it's, um, it's, it's cool to see kind of from the, from a historical perspective, almost like how it started on your end. Um, but yeah. Yeah. I mean, I see people out a lot of times they're putting stuff out there, trying to like put things out that would be popular, I guess, or, and I, I didn't, I didn't put any consideration into what people wanted. I just started talking out loud. <laughs> I love that. Um, so we are going to get into some topics around science and conversations around there, but before we get there, um, you had put something up on your Instagram story probably last week or something. And I just wanted to ask, you know, what is it about the hip hop and classical music mashup (laughs) that you like so much? Uh, so I have always geeked out on music in general. So I listen to lots of different kinds of music. Um, but you know, the foundations of Western music is, is Western classical music. And so I, I've taken a lot of like just side courses on like music theory and, and what makes, you know, you know, like when you say classical music, there's classical little C classical, which is that kind of whole group. And then classical with a big C, which is just a certain period within classical music. Uh, which is, you know, uh, Haydn and, and Mozart are the main ones of those, as opposed to like Baroque, which is Bach and Vivaldi. And then later you get into the Romantics like Wagner and kind of Beethoven moving into that. But um, I just really geek out on the math of it, which is what I think a lot of people don't realize is most, you know, Western music. Well, and, and Eastern music as well. It's just different there's different formulas, um, but it's it's just these mathematical formulas that they're playing with. Uh, that's when you get to the really avant-garde stuff. There's really like they're really just playing with math, like really like the jazz that nobody can listen to, for example. It's just a lot of complex math basically being inverted on itself and like regress and like they're just exploring different ways that the the, the combinations go because you know the the scale is just a, is a it's basically a mathematical formula divided out. You know, you have your your seven notes, and so you have basically it's divided an octave. You've got eight um, that it's divided across, and then how are you like jumping from one to another? You you know that kind of thing. And so I also like hip hop. You know, I work a lot in NBA spaces and a lot of hip hop there, but I also grew up with it. And so um, when I hear hip hop, I, I, there's a lot of the same math going on there, but people don't realize it. I mean, it's with all Western music. It's not just specifically hip hop, but the, the math is there. And to hear somebody mash the math of hip hop with the math of, um, classical music just really scratches an itch that uh, otherwise, uh, y- you don't get. So yeah, I, I have a whole playlist. that's just classical, uh, hip hop artists that use classical music in their, uh, songs. Um, because I just think it's a really fascinating juxtaposition. Yeah, I, I really dig that. Coming from a, a music nerd myself and like having enjoyed a lot of those sorts of things, I uh, I saw what you put out and I, I had to get your take on it because I was pretty sure that it was going to be something uh, mathematical or something scientific about it, but I, I yeah. enjoy that take for sure. So not to get too nerdy about it, but the what you'll notice is most of those songs are from the Baroque period that, that are being used. And so the Baroque period, you know, Bach and Vivaldi, it's very intricate, hence Baroque, uh, that, that time period. Um, but it's it's a lot of playing with scales and running through it. So it makes a great beat to it where there is no drum. It's just the music itself creates the beat and the rhythm. Um, and it's, 
you know, Bach and Vivaldi are just personal favorites of mine. So it just happens to be that that's also where the um, most uh, rap artists seem to jump onto that. Yeah. Right on. Um, so in terms of bringing things back a little bit more towards the, the field of rehab and science and those sorts of things, um, because like the goal, at least of this conversation from my end is kind of this idea of uh, bringing science to practice. That's like a common theme that you have throughout a lot of the things that you put out from both education as well as podcasts and those sorts of things. Um, so I think we should probably jump off by defining, you know, what science is first and maybe, you know, define who or what a scientist is as well. Yeah. So the big thing I like to point out to people is science is a process. It's actually a, could be defined as epistemology. So a, a, a way to acquire knowledge. So it, it's just a path or, or a process. It's a tool. Um, there, there isn't like this, the, you know, what does science say? It's like, that's not, it's like, what does a hammer say? Uh, or did a hammer build this? It's like, no, it's a, it's a human using a tool. Okay. And so what science is, is a tool that allows you to try to separate as much, um, objective knowledge from subjective knowledge. And so, you know, objective knowledge is, is things that are true in the world, regardless of, of point of reference. Um, whereas subjective knowledge would be what's true to an individual. Uh, I give the example of, you know, I could, I could ask whether or not the sun goes around the earth and there are ways for us to determine that as objectively true. Uh, and, and you can take, you know, 7 billion different people and have them all look at it at the same information. And it, and it should be that we can all come to this agreement that, that this is what we see. Um, as opposed to, you know, subjective knowledge would be like you know, my knowledge that I love my wife. There's no way for me to prove that to you or disprove that to you. Um, because that, that's a very subjective truth. It doesn't mean it's not true, not real or anything like that. It's just not something that science can really comment on. I mean, Richard Feynman was famous for, for not even considering social sciences at all a science because you're, you're dealing with humans, you're dealing with emotions, you're dealing with perspectives. And so uh, I don't necessarily throw it out in that way as much as I like to point out that there are objective truths that we can agree on, but then there's this whole subjective layer when we're interacting with humans that we have to understand and appreciate and, and see that it, it is different from person to person. And so um, from the clinical side, I think being scientific means that you're not disregarding objective truths. You, you definitely have to reckon with those. And, and those are your objective kind of uh, benchmarks and uh, foundations of what you're doing. And then how does that interface with the human that you're working with and their understanding of it and their reality of it? because that's what's ultimately going to drive, you know, where you are, you know, the more, the more you understand about things, the more you realize that, you know, as far as objective truth is concerned, there's a couple key little foundational things. That's why I teach a lot of physics around it because, you know, there, there's a certain amount of, you know, if you have momentum and you're trying to change that momentum, you have to put a certain amount of impulse into the system. Where does that impulse come from? Well, it has to come from muscle contraction, uh, and, how are you in manipulation of moment arms? And so there's a number of equations that will solve that and give you that answer, but they have to solve and give you that answer. <laughs> Otherwise, you can't have a solution to that problem. And so that's a, a point outside of the person that can be kind of an objective reference for it. So that's really interesting. Um, do you feel that 
somebody who then like therefore is like quote unquote a scientist similar to like a person like you use the the hammer analogy is a is a scientist somebody who just uses the scientific method um just like a somebody who like is maybe a carpenter is somebody who uses a hammer or something along those lines or do you feel like the term scientist holds like different meaning yeah i mean obviously a lay person thinks of a scientist as someone who works in a lab and, and you know xyz with that but um you know in my my interpretation of a scientist is yeah somebody who's using the scientific method uh when appropriate when able uh you know again you know if, if i'm talking to my wife and i start breaking trying to use a scientific argument to explain why i love her or how i love her uh that's not going to work very well that's not an appropriate application for that um but using a, a scientific method, you know, you could call it critical thinking as well. It's just, just what is your process of kind of cleaving that off? And that's, you know, I think one of the, the big benchmarks of science is, is this concept of falsifiability, meaning that um, you can only prove things with, you can only have certainty when proving something to be wrong or something to be untrue, I think is a better, better statement. Um, you can't really prove something to be true. So you can't prove in the positive. So you know, to prove that some, so uh, that an idea is true is so difficult as to just don't even worry about it. What you can do is just start cleaving off what is untrue. Uh, and usually you can have some certainty to that of saying, well, this clearly is not, you know, I did this thing and it clearly didn't work. Um, and I have good, strong, objective data that tells me it didn't work because sometimes it is working and it just doesn't seem like it is, but your data is showing you otherwise. Um, you can use that to, to show okay this is not working now to see that something is progressing for example that doesn't mean what you're doing is is working <laughs> uh, you can't prove that it's working you can prove that it's not stopping it you what you're doing could even be slowing down what's happening uh for all you know um and so that's where you know having that kind of orientation i think is really uh, a very kind of scientific way of going at things you'll hear scientists will always they'll say things like um well, I know it's not this. Uh, is it that over there? Well, I don't know. I mean, the data kind of, it, it definitely supports that, um, but that doesn't mean it's the only thing that could explain it. It's the only thing we have left to explain it. That's usually about the strongest statement you're going to hear from a scientist as well. I can't explain it any other, other way as of yet. Um, you look like at history of science, you know, like Newtonian physics, you know, classical mechanics, which is what we use for, for biomechanics, um, was actually updated by uh, Albert Einstein's relativity um, and it wasn't that the people before Einstein were wrong. They just didn't have a new theory that could explain things further. And so it's, it's just a matter of, and, and Einstein famously said, you know, no experiment, no, no number of experiments can prove me to be right. Only one experiment can prove me to be wrong. Uh, and that's that's kind of how that orientation works is is you're just having a theory that keeps holding up because nothing is disproving it as you continue to attack it. Hmm. That that last comment kind of remind me of I think it was a conversation you might have had either on a PT inquest uh, episode or something along those lines on different um, levels of evidence. Right. And like having these certain claims of you know having some like the the classic like all swans are white well it just takes one black swan to disprove that theory right Correct. Yeah. um whereas like then we can have different quote-unquote levels of evidence that may not necessarily have the same like weight on um the scientific practice right so you can have a clinical commentary that may be able to actually quote-unquote like disprove or show that a 
previously assumed theory is now actually incorrect. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, a good example of this, you know, in, in the physical therapy world is like therapeutic ultrasound. So where you like wave the, the wand over something and um, and it, it's been disproven for doing any of the things that we thought it would do. Uh, yeah, I mean, it can generate some heat below the skin, but it, that doesn't really turn into anything. And I mean, you can that's something you can test. Is there a, a temperature change? Um, but the simple thing is, you know, you can rub it on somebody with the machine on. And so all the lights are on, everything else. But then you can run it again where you've disconnected the crystal inside. But all the other lights, everything else works just the same. And so you can prove that it does not work. Uh, that's a real easy way to disprove it. So this is where the statement can be kind of weird here. Um, well, let me give you a counterexample. So a counterexample like E-STEM. So e-stim, you put the little pads on somebody and you turn it on. Well, there's no way to have it not be sending a current and have them think that there is a current going unless you do what they call sub-threshold, which is so light. And then the argument quickly is, well, you got to do more than that. You got to do enough that they can feel it. And so immediately you can't sham it. And so it, it's going to be harder to disprove that it, that it works. Uh, you think the same thing with hands-on interventions. So like your manual therapy type things where you're pushing and poking and doing that with your hands. How can you do that and not actually, and have the person think you're not doing it? Uh, you know, they, they have done studies where they like anesthetize somebody and well, yeah, <laughs> it's not going to uh, be quite as effective. Um, and so then I can make the statement where I could say, even though it's disproven, ultrasound is more scientific than these other things because um, as you said kind of on that hierarchy of i can disprove it much cleaner because it, it states a statement that is easy to, to disprove if it wasn't true when you get into your pseudosciences that's where you have something that you can make the statement but there's no way to disprove the statement so if it was false you would have no way of knowing it was false and and that's really true as i just talked about things that have huge subjective effects you know, what you can say is, well, I did this intervention and they felt better afterward. And that's a very true statement. It's just that you can't explain as to why, because any mechanism that you use, all of a sudden it's like that, that all falls apart fairly quickly um, on those mechanisms because you can't pull aside the fact that the, inter the person knows they're getting the intervention and that that really strong effect driven from the from the brain is going to be you know that that placebo effect as you call, as it's called is going to be a, a big factor there and so those interventions become less scientific uh, than say ultrasound even though ultrasound is clearly disproven. I really like that. Um, it kind of reminds me we had um, Judd Kalkoven on the podcast a couple months back and obviously that conversation was all around causal models and establishing causality between things. Um, do you feel like those sorts of ideas in terms of like a biological plausibility or some type of causal model is necessary to then like implement within a practice? Or do you feel like it's kind of one of those things where you kind of sometimes clinicians will just be like, well, we'll just test it out and see what happens. Yeah. I mean, let's be honest in practice. Uh, if it works, it works, right. <laughs> uh, you know, who knows why the problem is, is that that's, that's not very scientific as to 
you know, think of the purpose of science, the, the reason. So why would we even care that we can uh, identify objective truth? And well, so that we have a deeper understanding of reality. And by having a deeper understanding of reality, then we can actually manipulate things more effectively and intentionally, as opposed to just flinging crap against the wall and seeing what sticks. And so that's where, um, yeah, in order for you to kind of practice as, as a, you know, intervening with a human in some way, do whatever, as long as you're getting the outcomes, great. But that doesn't mean that you're causal, uh, directly, uh, meaning, um, or actually the better statement would be, it doesn't mean that the mechanism you think you're using is actually a thing that's working, uh, on somebody. So it could have just been that you gave them some smelling salts (laughs) and they're actually, you know, that got them amped up or whatever, or it could have just be something that happened to them that morning that made that session go that much better, uh, had nothing to do with you. It had to do with them coming in in the state that they were in, uh, for example. But we would be scientific about it so that we can actually drive the research forward. You know, that's what gets really frustrating is when I see research that doesn't actually move anything forward. It just says exactly what I can already tell myself in practice. Yeah, we did this versus doing that, and this was better. It's like, great. I could have done that you know, in practice of, well, I do this on some patients, I do that on other patients. I notice that this over here seems to work better. Great. But that doesn't explain as to why, you know, it could be, you know, well, I put my hands on somebody in this case and on this other case, I didn't touch them. Well, humans are social creatures. They like having being touched. That could be all that there is to it. Um, and it has nothing to do with the, the actual intervention itself as to all the other mechanisms as to why you selected it, why you're pushing towards it, why you're doing this. And so that's where being um, scientific as a profession is extremely important because you can start asking the questions. <clears throat> you know, um, one of the problems we have is uh, we'll do these things where we'll just like track data. And then use that to like answer questions. It's like, first off, you have to have a question before you can answer the question. Okay. So if you're just like tracking data, you can use that as a way to generate a question, but not to answer the question. So once you've generated a question, then you can create a whole new process for answering that specific question. It's really hard to answer any question well. And so you have to be very intentional in that process. And so that's the thing that that understanding of how that process works is really important to see kind of, you know, literature move forward. That's something I get frustrated about looking at the literature. You know, I did podcasts for over 10 years. We're, we're just commenting on our individual articles. And one of the frustrating things we had going into the podcast originally was how circular the literature was. And it's like, it's just the same studies kind of rehashed over and over again, looking at it. Well, we're going to look at it this way now. We're going to look at it that way now. It's like, yeah, you're, but you're not actually taking a deep look to look at the mechanisms underneath it. You're just doing the thing that can, you can do quickly to get published, um, which I think is what drives it. Uh, and so, yeah, we then did it for another 10 years and we're sitting there going, that's what got frustrating about it. It's like, we're, we're coming, making the same comments over and over again about the same literature. It's not moving forward. Um, and that's what could be really, really frustrating. Yeah. Uh, as a, as a long time PT inquest listener, I, I can resemble that in terms of hearing a lot of similar tropes over and over, but I mean, it's, it's a very fair statement, right? If, if nothing changes and nothing changes. And so you're going to make the same comments about the articles and those sorts of things. But, um, the, the idea that I very much have resonated with over the years is like that concept of like, you have to have a question in order to 
you know, answer it or then take a sample or track data. Um, I'll leave the actual textbook out of it, but I had read a quote out of a textbook and I can't remember the exact phrasing, but it was something along the lines of like addressing the fact that humans are complex beings, right? And so complexity is always at play. And so if you're going to develop a model for a complex phenomena, then likely the models are going to be recursive in some sort of nature. And so the, the argument was like, if these models are designed to be recursive, it begs the question of like, why theorizing or why creating a hypothesis at all? Um, and I would just be curious to hear what your sort of response to that would be. Yeah. So uh, the example I gave is like, and, and this gets into like complex adaptive systems, dynamical systems theory, which is kind of the umbrella term that all that lives under, like chaos theory, all that other stuff lives underneath dynamical systems theory as a major model. Uh, so like weather phenomena would be the thing. Um, so you think of something like a hurricane, you know, of how complexly massive that is. And the idea though, then, so the point of this is, we keep trying to study like as a profession the analogy would be we're trying to study like how do you manipulate a hurricane it's like well you don't it's too complicated it's too massive it's too you know how do you predict it and it's the same thing um but where you can have impacts are at the inputs to the system so what creates the system what drives the system not what necessarily controls the system once it's built but what makes the system emerge and that's where we can kind of attack it. And so that's, you know, most of my clinical work is just that. I'm looking at, you know, they'll, they'll have this athlete. It's like, yeah, we can't figure out why they can't, you know, they can't turn left or something. <laughs> it's like, uh, and they're working on like all these coordination drills and everything. It's like, well, on their left side, they can't decelerate because they don't have enough quad force production on that side. Did you think of just even testing? Because they have an, a knee injury over there. Did you actually look to test that, you know, force production there? Um, cause then when you test it, it's like, it's like 50% where the other side does. It's like, well, start there before you, because otherwise what you're trying to do is you're basically trying to teach a thing, this very complex adaptive system, which is really good at solving its problems that it's presented with. And you're trying to help it solve the problem better. And that's absurd because the system's so much smarter than you are. The problem is that you need to give it a new set of variables to work with. Uh, and so that's where you have to figure out, well, what's broken in, in the, in the input side of things. And so weirdly, the more complicated the system, the simpler, the thought process behind it would be. But again, I, I'll look at research and the research is going into like the psychological readiness. It's like, did you check a quad index <laughs> before you started working about whether they had a good relationship with their father? <laughs> I mean, it's, uh, why did you make it so hard? You know, that's, that's the thing that. You know, again, it's it, and I like to say, you know, when people say, well, it's not that simple. It's like, yes, but it's at least that simple, meaning you, you got to sort that part out first. And so don't make it harder than it has to be until um, and, and I guess maybe that's just the way my brain works is when I work with an athlete, I'm sitting there going, why is this so hard? This shouldn't be so hard. Where's the simple thing that I'm missing? And so that's always and, and I've been doing it long enough that I know the kind of spots to go look. Uh, I bet you there's this here. And, and honestly, this is especially like consulting, like on a you know professional athlete, for example, the first thing I do is I take an injury history because my first assumption is that this was not sorted out. Uh, and, and what I'm looking at is an athlete that's 10 years into their career and they've collected a bunch of different little injuries and as insanely advanced as this organism in front of me is and as 
insanely adaptive as this thing is, it's just a house of cards at this point. And it basically has been constrained to the point where it only has one solution to every problem. <laughs> and so what I need to do is kind of free that up by finding where these uh, little issues are. And that's where, you know, a lot of the work that I do, you know, we're doing these conferences now based around rehab and uh, you know, it's open to physical therapists, athletic trainers, sports performance and uh, sports science um, because that's a conversation we all can be having around an athlete returning to sport. You know, we're not going to, it's not focused on like acute management. It's not focused on performance. It's focused on an individual who is trying to get back to performance. And so, you know, assessing whether somebody has forced production out of a particular muscle, that's well in the scope of an athletic trainer, physical therapist, a strength coach, sports scientist, you name it. And it's all kind of the same language uh, and the same thing that can be kind of sorted. It's just at what level are we interfacing with them? But um, again, it's the, the, it's like, I look at a lot of like single joint testing. That's what I do tons of. And everybody else is talking about force plates. It's like, well, force plates are great, but you can't start at the force plate. That's you're looking at the actual interface with the ground at that point. I'm talking about what's happening before they're going to interface with the ground. I think that brings up a, an interesting topic, at least um, just before the, the force plates in terms of using the, the conference as a welcoming strategy for multiple different professions, right? Um, I, I think oftentimes people, or like physical therapists especially, just given that's the field that I'm currently in, um, tend to get protective over their field. Um, and they tend to just sort of say, well, like, well, we're different from a different profession, like strength and conditioning or like sports science, because we deal with like rehab, but kind of has you sort of laid out. It's you're just assessing the basic qualities that are like necessary for a sport or necessary for a terminal task um, and then developing a plan to move forward. Do you do you feel like sometimes that um, I don't know, like gatekeeping or guarding is necessary from a rehab standpoint? Or do you feel like a lot of times it's kind of. Um, not really all that necessary. Yeah. So there's a couple of problems that can be at play there. Again, humans are going to human. So, um, I think a lot of this is, you know, inferiority probably complex. I think it plays in a lot, you know, I think a lot of physical therapists, you know, they get, what is it? The, an abusive, uh, somebody who's been abused is somebody who will abuse. <laughs> And so, uh, you know, you get abused by hierarchy structure of physicians kind of beating them down or surgeons beating them down. So then they got to turn around and say, who can I beat down and who can I find like a, a, a person to be smarter than or more superior than in some way. And it's not, I mean, my interaction with surgeons don't go like that at all because <laughs> it's like, well, you do what you do and I do what I do. Uh, I'm not going to tell you how to do surgery, but you know, um, I, and, and I tend to, I, you know, I'm always self-deprecating and always trying to look at what I can do better. And so when I look at, you know, if I see a surgeon like feeling like they have to control like all the protocols, for example, uh, I then look at the physical therapist that they're working with. I'm like, oh, I get it. <laughs> this physical therapist isn't taking charge of any of this kind of stuff. They're really concerned about what they're doing with their hands for some reason. Um, and I think that's where, and so like when we look at our scope of practice type stuff in physical therapy, we fight for things like dry needling and things like, you know, the ability to do high velocity manipulations and stuff. And it's just like, that's not, that's not, in my opinion, I like to point that out. And then this, you know, maybe I'm in the wrong profession, but that's not what defines the profession in my view of it. Um, if the majority of the profession thinks otherwise, which I think maybe it does, 
Maybe that is how you define the profession. I'm the odd one out. But, you know, that continuum, as we talked about, you know, of like, we're just look, assessing a, a, a joint's ability to take force, generate force, tolerate, receive force. Um, the difference in my mind, when we look at like your athletic trainers, physical therapists on kind of the medical side versus your sports performance, strength coaches, and sports scientists really bridge all of it. Um, you know, on the, on the more performance side of things is that what the medical side is looking at is we have an injured structure, an injured thing. And, and that could just be something that is painful. Okay. So what we're going to do is actually from our perspective, we're testing this from a safety perspective of, well, how much can it take? How much can it generate? It is, it's the same question. It's just in a different population. Okay. Now, as that person is like, okay, well, it's not like dangerous to load this anymore. It's just a matter of this is all it can take and we need to work it up from here. Um, that's where it really kind of can shift over. And so um, as, as a physical therapist, when I'm working in that continuum, what I'm doing is I'm defining the box that I want everybody else to stay out of. That's pretty much all that my job is. And so I'll do a testing battery and go, okay, when they go any higher than this, the system gets really unhappy whether it says, ouch, whether it just, uh, it, it could start swelling, it could start reacting in some way, or I just know tissue healing considerations. I, this just shouldn't be loaded beyond this quite yet because it's not ready for it. I just create that box and then I take that box over to, uh, and again, in, in the setting I'm working and typically I'm working with strength coaches um, who are damn good at their job. And I just go, here's the box I don't want you guys to go into, but here's all the other stuff that we want to kind of go at. But then as we go further along, that box shrinks very, very small. And actually I start saying, I want you to get all up in that box because here's the, here's the stuff that I'm trying to, to stimulate. And here's the ways that I think are best to stimulate it. And then I get feedback from them. And a lot of times there's a lot of back and forth of, you know, especially if, if I'm working with a team, that strength coach knows that player much better than I do. And they're going to know much better ways to get that, that outcome that I'm looking for uh, from them, just from the personality side of things. And so, but that's where there's that, that overlap. But, you know, what should be quickly apparent is, especially with a really high level athlete, I can't do my job without the help of a, of a sports performance. Um, and we're both doing the same job from that perspective. It's just uh, how are, am I helping give them ideas and kind of guidance through that, that sticky process of a very particular injury that they're dealing with. Yeah, I, I, I can very much appreciate that perspective because I think a lot of times it is one of those things where it's like a, a protection type of thing of like, like stay away from like this box that I, that I perform and those sorts of things that I do. Um, and I mean, for, for some reasons, you know, like maybe a, a rehab professional had a, had a poor experience or whatever. And like giving the, the surgeon example, you know, it's like, well, look at the rehab professional that they're working with. Like, okay, cool. Makes sense. Um, but I think also a lot of times that can be taken either out of context or just taken completely and like that that's now that person's identity of like this is how i operate and this is the only things that i do and then there's nothing else that anybody else can do to like come in to this box and assist because i'm the professional or something along those lines but yeah i mean let's be honest there's a lot of crazy stuff going on out there in the in the sports performance world and the physical therapy world um and this is why you know i used to get into 
I don't want to say arguments around that, but I used to get into like, let me see if I can change this or change that about it. But what I found was we can all agree that forced expression is a thing that's required. Um, I mean, that's regardless of what your viewpoint of the world is, that's, that's a hard reality. Again, that's an objective truth we can all kind of settle down to and say, yeah, this has to happen. And so typically when I'm working with somebody, I don't really care what their approach is um, or what their worldview is. It's like, all right, well, this is the thing that we're going to be judged by is the ability to do this. And so here's a test that we're all going to agree, test exactly what we're talking about. And here's the number on it. Here's the number on the other side is just a reference point. Whether that's a good reference point or not, it's a completely different conversation, but we're going to start with at least a starting point. And so let's see this change happen here. Now go do whatever, however you define being effective to change that. But you know what? In two weeks, we're going to assess it again and see, did that number move? And if the number moved, I really don't care. You know, this is where we get into effectiveness versus efficacy. So effectiveness could be you give them a massage and a nice conversation and all of a sudden they're generating more force. Okay, sure. (laughs) That's not exactly going directly at the problem I would have thought, but maybe it is. I don't know. Um, I don't get into those conversations. Just a matter of, hey, as long as it's moving forward, we're happy. Um, As things tend to stall out, then it gets to the point where, all right, well, we need to address this directly now of how do we condition them to take this exact load and and usually again regardless of the person I'm talking to they're going to they're going to recognize that and and work towards that um you know again the diversity of thought in a profession um I'm very appreciative of you know especially dealing like with elite sports there's a diversity of athlete who has a diversity of thoughts and so you need a provider that can interface with them and typically there's some diversity within a team's structure of, of providers, um, whether it's, it, it could be that it's, you know, you have a lot of different strength coaches, a lot of different physical therapists, or a lot of, or it could just be, you have a strength coach, you have a physical therapist, you have a, an athletic trainer, uh, you have a director, um, and every one of them has a little different kind of view of things. And so it's like, okay, well, certain athletes are going to interface better with this provider. Other athletes are going to interface better with that provider because of their background, their belief structure. It could be their, their culture, their race, their, um, their uh, gender, um, any of these different reasons. And so it's like, all right, well, they're going to be the point person for this person. But at the end of the day, <laughs> we're going to look at can they generate force or can they receive force? And so uh, do whatever you do to get this person to get better at this thing. Uh, and sometimes it's a matter of getting the provider to understand this is the intervention that needs to get done because it's directly going to change this number uh, or directly practice on changing this number. Uh, but you get them to do this however you get them to do this, however you want to explain it or, or whatever from that. Um, that's that's where I feel all those kind of varying viewpoints. We can take advantage of them potentially. I think we're we'll we'll shift gears a little bit um just in terms of talking about i I think we've been circling around this idea of you know um basic science and and scientific principles of you know rehabilitation but um kind of being a little bit more direct here what do you think some of the basic attributes of science um however you interpret it that you think are commonly kind of missing in a clinical setting or by clinicians um practicing rehab physical therapy performance you name it I would say the ability to generate an alternative hypothesis. And so what I mean by that is uh, when you do something, 
you get an outcome. Now, whether you cause it or not, whatever. Um, but whatever happened, your brain is going to generate a hypothesis as to why it happened. So what is the cause of it? And so what we tend to do is we tend to wrap our identity around that hypothesis or we wrap our hypothesis around our identity. So it's like, well, of course this, you know, this is what caused it because this is what I do. You know, this is who I am. I'm a, you know, I'm a, this kind of provider. Um, and so then that makes it really hard for you to entertain any other ideas as to why that may have been caused because it becomes like a personal attack because you kind of wrap your own identity around it. So what I recommend people to do is, and what I think we're, we're really bad at is you do an intervention and it works. It's take a, take a moment to step back and say, what are all the ways that this, that what are all the potential causes for why this happened? Uh, and try to be creative there and, make up like crazy stuff. I'll tell you a lot of the, there, there's some things like some predictions that we've come across that made no sense when we're putting it together other than it made a lot of logical sense, but it didn't make any intuitive sense. But then once we followed the logic and then tested it, it's like, Oh, that really is a better explanation, even though it's kind of crazy. Um, this was our, our looking at like somebody coming off an ACL reconstruction the difficulty would change a direction. You know, you would think it's the coordination of planting and pivoting and all of that. But what we actually found was, oops, my light just went out. What we actually found was it's the, um, it's the ability to decelerate going into the planting and pivoting. So weirdly, it's not the plant pivot leg that's going to have the challenge. It's going to be the deceleration leg. And, and that's exactly what we find when we do, you know, like, really high velocity like a 505 test is a great example where we find that the system breaks down but it breaks down opposite to what you would predict it would do unless you have a hypothesis that the deceleration is the hard part not the planting and pivoting um but that's the thing is you have to start entertaining because i mean just think about just think about that that's like verboten to the idea that planting and pivoting isn't isn't the problem i mean of course planting and pivoting is a problem that's where they tear their acls on the plant and pivot but uh when you actually follow kind of building some of the stuff out you're like oh but that's not the high load task the deceleration is a high load task so let's unpack that a little bit more and we find oh <laughs> also that requires a lot of isolated quad force production that's way higher than anything they experience in the in the weight room ah so that could be where that's the only time that they're getting that kind of load. And if it comes out of nowhere and they haven't practiced it, that's where, you know, something will break down. But the ability to step back and say, I'm going to think of all the different ways that this, that could be driving this or could have caused this change or this outcome that I'm seeing. Um, the other thing that does is that if you think of all the possible ideas there, all the possible causes, then when you get more evidence you get evidence against something, you'll be able to drop it faster and switch to a different one because you generated all of them. So you, your identity is in all of them. So you're expecting to have to refute some of these. They can't all be true. Okay, well, now you're going to be a lot easier to drop those ideas. Um, and I think that's what's really, really important. Um, and so it gets around identity um, where I think providers 
clinicians, coaches have a hard time with being so stuck on their, their causal explanations and they can't entertain other causations uh, that really kind of holds them up. Yeah, I really appreciate that. And so I had taken your hip and knee course recently online and um, there was a, a similar process that you had kind of shared there. And one of the mentions was, again, it's like it, it becomes a less attackable um, identity process or like issue because then it's like, okay, cool. I already thought of that. And it's funny, I had almost approached it from felt like when I was in school, like I'd approach it from almost an exact opposite perspective, but had the same like endpoint of like, okay, instead of what like am I thinking, I just like created different archetypes in my head. And so I would be like, okay, what like how would Eric Mara approach this situation? Right. And then it's like, okay, cool. If I have evidence of something else, well it's like, okay, cool. Well, that's not my idea. Eric's Eric's the idiot, not me, you know? Exactly. Um, and then and so <laughs> then I'm like, okay, cool, move on, whatever the next thing is, let's go. Um, because it at least for me, it was helpful because I like as a student and all those sorts of things for a while, I didn't have the confidence to say, this is what I think it is because I didn't have the reps. I didn't have the experience. I could talk about some of the evidence, but not a lot of it. And so I was just sort of like, well, I don't like, I can kind of theorize what somebody else would think. And so then if that's helpful or not, then I can either adopt it or then throw it away. Well, this gets into, um, uh, you know, again, how esoteric do you want to get, but, um, using a many world, I actually wrote a blog post about this using many worlds, uh, many worlds approach to science. And actually there's, there's some interesting, um, over in the like quantum physics and theoretical physics world where they're actually, they're talking about this may actually be what, what is actual reality is this many worlds, uh, view of things. And so you, you basically generate all these different hypotheses. And then what you're asking is, do I live in a world where this hypothesis is possible? is still possible. And so what you're trying to do is figure out what world you live in, what world you're existing in. And so, because there is a world where this other hypothesis is the one that's true. And so what you're looking to, trying to determine is what world do you live in? So it, it's just a, again, it depends on how your brain works, but it's just a different way of coming at the same, um, coming at ideas. It's like, well, I'm not even saying that it's right or wrong. I'm just saying, what world do I live in? Well, I don't live in a world where this is true. Uh, and when you talk to like theoretical physics, they're like, yeah, well, what makes sense is like the, the physics that we see here in this world are because the, the laws are set up in this way, but you, there's probably another universe where the laws are different. And so gravity would act differently. Light would travel differently, you know, et cetera, et cetera. And so it's going to create all sorts of different causations. Um, and so it really, even, you know, when we talk about objective truth, like we were just talking about earlier, it's objective truth for this universe. <laughs> Um, but that's what, um, that's one way you can kind of go at it is just be like, and weirdly that works for some people where they're just like, Oh, I don't even have to worry about whether it's true or not. I just have to figure out what, what existence am I in? It's like, well, it'd be nice if that was true, but that's not the reality of this world. Um, but you know, that's also a, that's a, that's a thing that's stated of like, um, getting into like politics and stuff like that of, you know, well, this would be an ideal world, but that's not the world I live in. So how do I figure out what's going to work best and stop imagining this idealized world that doesn't exist, but the world that actually does exist, how am I going to interface with that? Um, so it, it, yeah, it's, it's an interesting kind of way to get at uh, uh, critical thinking. Yeah, I really appreciate that. 
Um, bringing things back a little bit more towards like the a specific rehab lens. Um, yeah, because I'll shoot it off on tangent. Yeah. <laughs> you gotta, you gotta rein me in. I'll tell you that. I, now. I'm the same way. So, uh, yeah, we'll we'll try. I'll try and be the responsible one. But, um, but good. <laughs> so again, during the the course that you had uh, sort of hosted through like the your website, um, you gave a really interesting example about like machine learning and how when it was trying to identify the difference between like a husky or a wolf it was really identifying something else like entirely um i won't steal the thunder but could you maybe like uh talk about that a little bit and then maybe give an example of some of that how that kind of thinking and those sorts of processes are relevant within rehab or physical therapy yeah so i think and and so that, that online course is going to get updated this year because uh, I kind of expand because I get a lot of questions around that machine learning stuff, especially since AI has become a more popular thing now. It's like well, I've been talking about, well, first off, these are large language models, what we see right now in AI uh, that everybody calls AI. And it's like, man, eh, it's just a way it's kind of working through um, language history. But um, that example there is supervised learning where you're, you're, um, you're teaching you're basically giving uh, giving information and trying to teach it this information, um, and so that example, not to steal the thunder, it's it's fine. It's um, it's a study where they were teaching uh, a bit of software with supervised learning how to differentiate between um, pictures of husky dogs and pictures of wolves, and so they're showing you know they're scanning pictures in and saying this is a husky, this is a wolf, this is a husky, this is a wolf, and then they let it figure out its own like process and then they send pictures through it. And the thing is right. Like 80 to 90% of the time, it can tell the difference between a Husky and a wolf. Uh, but then there are ones that it gets wrong. And so, and, and when I show it in the course, I, I can show a couple ones where it's like, clearly this is wrong. And how did it mess this up? And so with these systems, you know, this is something to, to also take home is, you can't look at the code that it wrote because it's writing trillions of lines of code because that's how complicated it is to do tasks. It takes lots and lots of code. And so the, all what you can do is you can ask questions to the algorithm and have it look into its own policy to figure out what it's doing. And so in that example there, what it, when they asked it to get rid of anything that's not that it didn't find useful to determine whether it was a husky or a wolf, it gets rid of the animal entirely. And what you realize is it's looking at the background. It's looking to see if there's snow or not snow in the background because, because of the behavioral characteristics of those two different animals. You know, a wolf is a wild animal. Pictures of wolves are going to have snowy backgrounds because it's easier to see a high contrast environment. You're going to see the, the wild animal easier and get a picture of it. Whereas a husky, it's like, there's a dog. You don't, have to, <laughs> you don't have to see it against any background. It's tied up in the backyard. And so you just take a picture of it. And so um, we laugh about, uh, you know, haha, stupid algorithm. It messed up. It's like, no, actually, it did something very smart. You didn't. You think you asked it to tell the difference between huskies and wolves. You didn't. What you asked it to do was tell the difference between a picture of a husky and a picture of a wolf. And the easiest way to do that is look at the background. It was really efficient at, at solving that problem because it's way smarter than you are. Uh, it has way more processing power. But we see this in like rehab in particular where, you know, I give the example of like you're harping on somebody to you know, squat even after an ACL reconstruction. Uh, that's a classic example because they're always trying to do an interlimb compensation where they're shifting the weight off of that surgical side. 
and you're yelling at them to get get even, you're putting them on scales, you're doing all these creative things to to force them to squat in a way that's going to use that leg more. And they will do exactly what you ask them to do and they will sort that out. But, you know, the quad loading which you think you're getting is still being shielded because they just don't have the quadricep. And so the outcome of they squat prettier, they squat even but they're not squatting normal. They just look like they're squatting normal. We see it with hop testing as well. You teach them to hop better and you think you've solved the underlying problem. Um, and so this is an example, much like the, the AI situation where you thought you taught it one thing, but because your measure, your outcome is, is very specific to this task, what you actually taught it to do was figure out how to solve this task as efficiently as possible with the constraints that it currently has. You, you're not solving the constraints, which is our first priority as we talked about before. And so that's where, you know, um, that, that's, that's an example of supervised learning not solving a problem the way you would think. And this is why in the machine learning world they use reinforcement learning, which is how animals learn, which is a better way to teach. Um, but again, you're still dealing with the problem of uh, well, let me back up a little bit. Reinforcement learning is how the animal is learning. That's how the human is learning. You may be using a supervised strategy, but it's going for whatever is reinforcing. Whatever strategy gets reinforced is what's going to go for. And the system is creating its own reinforcements, so to speak. And that's where um, I, I, you know, I can teach all that stuff. But for a physical therapist, nine times out of 10 or 99 times out of 100, don't worry about it. They don't have the capacity to do the thing you want it to do. That's the issue. Solve the capacity problem first, and then you can sort it. Now, when you get into performance world, I think that stuff matters a whole lot more of how you're setting up environments, how you're driving strategies that you want. Um, but even that is a, more of a performance world than it is like more your classic strength and conditioning world. You see we start splitting hairs here. Because my argument is for the weight room, build up capacities to do work and then let the organism figure out its strategies to optimize those capacities in task. Now, if you want to change those tasks and drive those tasks, that's where reinforcement learning comes in. But that's very, very complicated. And that's very, very like skill. Like I really want a very specific strategy here um, and where... I don't like getting into those spaces because I have a hard time determining whether a strategy is optimal for that one particular organism as opposed to that organism figuring out its own optimal strategy. Because I've seen some some athletes that are freaking amazing and the things that they select are nothing I would have picked, nothing I would have thought would have been a good idea. But the way they're able to do it actually makes them that much better than everybody else because that's what makes them special is that they can use strategies that nobody else can. And so me trying to drive a strategy and act like I know what's best, that gets real iffy in my mind. Yeah. And it, it's even like a, I don't know, almost like a cognitive reasoning error where like, it's like, okay, cool. This person is like one of the best athletes possible. They literally do not move like everybody else because they're one of the best athletes in the world like so why are you move like everybody else. <laughs> it's like why are you trying to make them move like them uh yeah, yeah it's interesting but 
Regardless, um, Eric, I want to be conscious of your time. I have one last question that kind of surrounds, I think, a lot of what the listeners may be kind of thinking about at the moment in terms of um, this thought process, like kind of somebody saying, well, you know, this is all great, but I work in elite sport. I'm constantly either on the road or in suboptimal areas. Um, I can't realistically control for a lot of the variables that we're talking about today. Um in your perspective, maybe we lean into the performance side of things, kind of like what you were saying before. How can somebody really in this elite setting where there are a lot of suboptimal like, time frames and like areas and those sorts of things, like how can they still practice in a more quote unquote scientific manner? I think the easiest thing is creating a, a dichotomy of task versus capacity and thinking in that mindset. So um, a lot of what you're doing you know, from the performance side, again, as I mentioned before, is building capacities to do a task. Um, we get too stuck on, is it the task itself? Am I doing the task itself and looking for task transfer? Because um, first off, doing in a slow, controlled way is already not the task. <laughs> so stop trying to recreate the task in a slow, controlled way. Your force vectors are nowhere near the right angles, even let alone magnitudes. Um, you know, it completely changes the system. This is like those gravity eliminated treadmills. They're, they're great, um, but that's not running. The biomechanics completely change once you're supported by that. So it's it's not running until you actually are dealing with your body weight at a certain you know load profile at a certain speed, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but so to, to the point of that being, don't get too worked up about whether you're creating the the task that you want. Look to see are you creating the capacity demand either from a maintenance perspective which a lot of times and you know on, on the road or whatever it's just like i just need a reminder dose of this and so finding what's what's that it, you kind of get that 80 20 rule i think is really important too um and that's uh i see it really bad in the physical therapy world but i see it in the performance world as well where you get in this mindset of like the perfect workout and it's all these things and there's like 20 different things you're trying to get them to do and so you have this kind of all or nothing view of it sometimes. And so you start on the process and then what ends up happening is you don't complete it. And then you're frustrated you didn't complete it. But what you didn't realize is you started on a bunch of things that probably weren't going to do all that much. You want to focus on that 20% that gives you the 80% of results, whether that's real or not, but that's the 80-20 rule. Um, and, and I have these conversations all the time with providers. It's like, well, what, what do you think is the 20% that's important here? And a lot of times they're dumbfounded by the question. They're like, it's all important. It's like, well, yeah, but how can you be more efficient? So how do you, how can you create a hierarchy here where you say, this is the stuff that has to get done. Now, what, what else can we kind of add on after if we have time or we had a motivated athlete that wants to do that much more? In season, most athletes, they want to play the sport. And so what you're doing from that performance side is just looking for you know and this is where uh the concept of like slow leaks you have an athlete with an injury history so look for that slow leak that if you don't keep an eye on this one thing it's going to get worse and worse over the season so they have an old ankle injury or whatever and so evert or strength just kind of bleeds off on this athlete and so that's going to be the thing that you're going to just keep kind of testing that and tracking that you may have you know pretty much every athlete can be doing some sort of compound lift um, 
one to, you know, depending what your season is, what your sport is, whatever, uh, it could be as a warm up um, for for sport. It could be as a, an off day. Just we're going to do a lift just to remind ourselves that we can handle this kind of load. And that's really all we're doing, you know, from the maintenance perspective. And then that's where you're working like with rehab to say, ah, but they're starting to have a hard time with this. And counter movement jump tracking is a classic one of that. You see, well, counter movement jumps starting to get crazy on the, you know, I'm not even going to try to explain why, but it's looking really weird now. All right, well, let's kind of pull them aside and let's look. Are you having an issue with this type of movement? How about that type of movement? Just your kind of basic core lifts. Um, And that's really all you're doing is just trying to track those kind of slow leaks and so i i think you know on the road busy you know get a little cheap like a tin deck or, or or some small you know load cell product uh where you can just measure force quick and dirty on the road don't get too precious about um how perfect you are uh, especially at the beginning just just start doing some quick dirty assessments and then focus on those things that you really need to kind of focus on for for that athlete and and if, if you can't answer the question of what can you, um, if you had to cut 80% of your program, what would you leave? If you're dumbfounded by that, you've got a problem. Uh, you should be able to take a step back and go, okay, these are the couple things that I would do if I could only do one or two things. Um, I think that's probably the, the best advice I can give to people. Uh, because, you know, especially when you're dealing with higher and higher level athletes, they don't have time or the attention span <laughs> typically to, to do a full program. Don't, don't make your program too precious uh, or fragile, I think is the way it's sometimes put. Don't let your program be that fragile that the slightest little variation of it completely breaks it. Uh, <laughs> luckily, the human body isn't that fragile. Yeah, Eric, I, I love that. I think that's a, it's a great place to wrap up. So, um, in terms of, you know, anything that you want to let the listeners know about, I know you've got a couple conferences that you're, um, heading up and those sorts of things, but if there's anything else you want to share with the listeners where they can get in touch with you, all those sorts of good things, um, have at it. Yeah. So, um, on the sciencept.com is where most of my stuff lives. Uh, I need to start, I need to po- put some sort of link over there to these, these conferences. So, uh, if you go to eliterehabconferences.com, um, you'll see the links to the two conferences we have right now. We're expanding to other sports. Uh, so we have um, hockey coming up uh, in June, and we have and registration. By the time this gets posted, registration should be up for that one. Um, that's going to be in Colorado Springs at Colorado College. Uh, got a bunch of NHL and NCAA presenters uh, on elite hockey, and that's all they're going to talk about. And we're talking, as I mentioned, we're talking about rehab, getting somebody back to high performance f- after an injury. Um, anywhere in that continuum, those are the conversations that are going to be had around that. And we do a nice networking event uh, in the evening for that. Uh, as well, where people get to kind of hang out, have some drinks, uh, have a little bit of food. Uh, we're going to do that at the hockey uh, arena at Colorado College, a brand new facility is really, really nice. Um, and then the other one is Elite Basketball Conference, which we do during Summer League in Las Vegas uh, for the NBA. So we have a bunch of NBA, NCAA uh, presenters for that as well. And then um, big networking event there in Las Vegas. We do it all at UNLV. Um, and we do, uh, we're going to have posters this year. So Matt Jordan and Rich Willie are our research chairs for this year. Uh, so they're going to be reviewing posters. We're going to put them up at the networking event. Uh, we're going to have, everybody's going to get kind of interviewed. 
uh, at the networking event. So um, as far as all the researchers, let them talk about their research. Um, and then hopefully we'll give them a nice award that they would be embarrassed to carry onto an aircraft home. That's kind of the plan for that. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a lot of fun. Um, everybody who went last year had a really good time. Uh, and yeah, it's just, again, an opportunity to talk about a sport and not all sports, but let's talk about the high levels of this sport. And the reason we are, I, I started putting on these conferences was just people coming to me within these fields of, you know, they're like, we go to these conferences and nobody's talking about what we talk about. Nobody's talking about these conversations of elite. They're talking about, you know, what the audience wants to hear. You go to CSM, for example, for physical therapists, combined sections meeting, and it's, it's a lot of, you know, general population, which is what 90% of the providers are seeing. And so we created this, this niche and it's very well attended. So we sold out last year in six hours for the basketball one. Um, we then expanded it to be larger. Uh, so it is larger. Uh, it did sell out again, but, uh, it, it took it, uh, more than six hours for the larger one. Um, we're going a little bit larger this year. Um, hopefully it won't sell out because selling out is, means that we're, we're getting close to our space capacities. So, um, but, uh, it, it probably will. Um, we're hoping to expand it for soccer and football, uh, in 2025, but we're having some logistical issues around those two sports right now. It, it has to do with how the seasons lay out, uh, between college and pro, um, football, not, not such a big issue other than location. Um, trying to do that around the, the combine potentially for NFL, um, but yeah, this should be fun events and, and again, talking across all disciplines and, uh, and having better conversations, uh, around that. So, yeah. Awesome. Well, all of those sound very exciting and I'm sure for any kind of professional that's in those spaces, it'll be a, a must attend, but, um, Eric, thank you so much for coming on the show. I, I really appreciate it. And I think this will be very valuable to the listeners. Great. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. Yeah, no problem.